0: Have you ever heard the sound of freedom, freedom. freedom. Have you ever heard the sound of freedom you are listening to the flip side with Noah Filipiak, connecting the reality of the gospel to the grit of life you can support the podcast at patreon.com noah or at noah slash give what's up everybody welcome to episode 36. Of the flip side podcast it is early ish october as i talk to you into this microphone it is a beautiful fall day in michigan one of the best weather weeks of the year michigan fall when you when the stars align just right and it's not raining And it's in the 60s and it may be flirting with 70 and it's sunny out. It is gorgeous and you have to savor it because it will be gone in about 30 seconds and winter will be here for the next eight months. But in the meantime, we're going to enjoy today. I mentioned that it's early October because with early October, comes early November this time of year the presidential election I don't know about you but I'm going to be so glad when the election is over I I can't watch the debates I tried watching debates one year one random year I don't remember when and thought wow these are our 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 leaders of our country and the way the way they talk to one another like like elementary school children, the the disrespect, the insults, the interrupting. It is the type of behavior we all teach our children not to engage in. It is this immature, and it seemed, at least this this year I was watching, uh, it, it seemed to sort of transcend party. It just seemed to be the culture of what was expected. It was an insult contest, uh, more than a helpful uh, conversation about politics, and I, I, I'm just ready for it to be over. I, I try, I, I've I always tried as a pastor to not say, uh, you should vote for this person or or that person. I've made some, probably the boldest statements I've ever made about politics or a president, Uh, in episode 33, which was part two of my conversation with Preston Sprinkle, where we talked about just how we are so polarized as a country, uh, particularly when it comes to politics and, and political issues. But today... As I I interview David Swanson, he's the author of Rediscipling the White Church. We're gonna talk about race and racism and racial issues. And it's it it's it's going to bring up some triggers. It's gonna bring up some trigger language for some of you, some language that I think has been has been hijacked by politics, has been has been hijacked to a point where it's sometimes hard to even talk about these these things because as soon as you do everyone just goes into their their republican tribe or their their democrat tribe or conservative or liberal or however you want to to draw it up and we get into our tribes and we can no longer have have helpful biblical conversation about about what's going on in our country and so uh, we do have a mailbag here on the podcast, and you are allowed to email in anything you would like. The email address is podcast at beyondthebattle dot net. Podcast at beyondthebattle dot net. Speaking of these issues, we'll jump into the mailbag right now. Mailtime. Mail mail oh. mail the mail is here. So this email comes from Pete and I referenced the email, but I'm not actually gonna gonna read the email and, and that's only because he brings up the topic of cultural Marxism, and it's to me, it's such a <laughs> it's such a confusing topic. I was even I was confused by the email and I didn't want to misrepresent Pete or what he was asking. But he brings up the the buzzword That's the word I was looking for with trigger words. There's these buzzwords. He's asking about cultural Marxism. And I'm going to say here publicly, so to speak, on the podcast, I am not an expert on what all these words mean. And here's the thing. I don't (laughs) You could think you could say what you think cultural Marxism means or what critical race theory means but there's gonna be somebody on the other side of the fence and they're gonna say that it means something very different than what you say that it means. And so these terms, they're relatively unhelpful. I try not to use these terms. They're loaded terms, they're labels, they're labeling terms, and they they allow us to avoid having intelligent, civil, constructive conversation. Because once I can slap a label on you, particularly a label like Marxist or communist or socialist or or whatever it may be. Uh, the, the the another one would be um, what's the word for a dictator? I just heard someone using it actually this week to talk about Michigan's governor. I can't think of the word, but this sort of draconian you know, dictator. You you can use these words, which is a totally different conversation, right? About a different type of of governance. But once you start using these labels, you can, it's, we, we no longer talk. We no longer have, have anything to talk about. Now it's just a matter of insulting and shooting grenades back and forth. Pete was not doing that in his email. I just honestly get a bit confused when these labels uh, are used. So instead of breaking down what I think cultural Marxism is or isn't. And if it's of the devil or if it's really great or whatever it may be, I just want to make a few observations as I've already been doing. Uh, one observation would be in our culture as Christians in America, you know, in the United States, we don't have space to give biblical, prophetic, critiques of capitalism by prophetic i mean the way the prophets of the old testament they would go to the king or they would go to the high priests and they would say hey what you're doing isn't right it's not right before god's eyes And here's a critique. Here's a critique from scripture of of what you're doing. So we don't have space for that in our culture as Christians when it comes to capitalism. Uh, If you you question anything about capitalism, if you critique anything about capitalism, if you give a warning about capitalism and what it can and will do to your heart and to uh, the the people you're around or, or, or your community or whatever it may be, any sort of critique Here's what happens. You instantly get labeled what? Well, you're a communist. And we all know communists are from the devil because we all, uh, I'm 37. I grew up in the 80s and 90s and communists were the bad guys in all of the the movies that we watch, right? The uh, Cold War, post-Cold War. And look, I'm not saying anything here is... That that it's communism is good. I'm saying it's a very handy label to throw on somebody that disagrees with you. It's this is it's like if you go to debate class, you learn these ways of debating, and you could come to me with let's say I was all for capitalism, and I said it's from on high, God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, and there was another tablet, and it was called capitalism, and it was touched by the hand of God, and you know when Jesus came, he said this is the my, the my my body. Broken for you, and he took the bread and he broke it. And this is my blood, shed for you, the new covenant. And and drink this blood in remembrance of me. And and this is capitalism. I give to you as a, the economy from God. Let's say I was a I was a American who who believed that. And they certain there certainly are out there. And then you came to me and said, Yeah, but there's this one thing about capitalism, and I don't. Here's a verse from Jesus, and I don't I don't think those two things quite go together. And I could just say communist. You're a communist, or you are a socialist. Uh, Those are the words we use now uh, politically to not have to have these conversations, to to not have to listen to when somebody is critiquing, or in a in a biblical community sense giving. Man, and, and how healthy is it? It is so healthy to have people in your life, no matter what the subject is, if it's your money in this case, or it's your, your sex life, if it's your attitude, if it's the way you treat other people, to have Christians who love you, who point you back to Scripture and say, hey, let's talk about this. Isn't that, I mean, I think that's what sermons are supposed to do. Sermons are supposed to keep you in line with Scripture, but often sermons instead, uh, they, they just... Comfort you in what you already are living and 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 doing as an American, and the sermon is meant to comfort you in that lifestyle, so that and, and sort of help you live that lifestyle uh, better, you know, in, in a way that kind of uh, is more. I don't know. It's a way that you'll come back the next Sunday, right, and keep tithing and all these things. So that's a whole other conversation that I'm getting into about church and sermons and. And and in, in the prophetic piece versus sort of caring and trying to comfort people along, uh, there's <laughs> there's plenty to be said there. But when it comes to capitalism uh, and and all these labels—communism, socialism, Marxism—I I don't like that we can't give critique to capitalism. I'm I'm listening to the book "How to Be an Anti-Racist" by Ibram X. Kendi. He is not a Christian, but he gives some, wow, profound is a good word, profound critique of capitalism. It's towards the the middle end of the book, and wow, you listen to it, and I mean, and and he, I'm, I'm sure people would go nuts on some of the stuff that he says, but he's not for communism or for socialism he's just giving critique of capitalism he calls capitalism the twin of racism and gives a i'm not going to give it all here but just gives some profound compelling thoughts on the connection between capitalism and racism and and if you man you just go back throughout history and, and even how capitalism began and you think about Yeah, You have a plantation owner and they own all this stuff and they have all the stuff and the slave, they don't have the stuff. And, you know, it just there's this intricate relationship that I've never thought about between capitalism and, and racism. You have to be able to read that is what I'm saying. You have to be able to read that and maturely set all your pride aside, set aside all your political allegiances. And let's be honest propaganda that's been indoctrinated into our heads from our political parties and read something like that chapter that critiques capitalism and then go to scripture and go to Jesus and say, Jesus, what do you want me to do with my money? Uh, what do you want me to, how, how do you want me to treat the poor? Uh, what what should money look like within the kingdom of God, within the church? And I don't care what the political parties say. I don't care what the isms are of capitalism. And, and co- I don't care about any of that stuff. Communism. I care about the kingdom of God ism. I care about Jesus ism. And, and that's where we uh, have to get to as well. What I'm going to do next is read from my friend Tyler St. Clair. He has been a guest on the podcast uh, before, and he wrote this on his Facebook page. Tyler is a black pastor in Detroit, and I, I love how Tyler takes us away from how we miss the point, and he takes us here to the point. So these aren't the words of Noah, uh, this white, you know, pastor trying to maybe be an activist or whatever. This is from Tyler who's living this. This is his life as a black man in America. And he wrote this uh, the week of the Breonna Taylor uh, verdict that came out where there were not charges filed against the officers that killed Breonna Taylor. Here's what Tyler says. You labeled MLK and company communists, but celebrate him today, and now call us cultural Marxist, social justice warriors, and critical race theorists. You've downplayed my personal experiences with police as, quote, isolated events. You've misrepresented our desire for biblical justice as something evil, been callous at our tears, and avoid true dialogue you've screamed all caps about abortion for decades but have ignored countless other human rights issues including immigrations <clears throat> excuse me immigration and all forms of discrimination and other forms excuse me and other forms of discrimination you've remained silent about countless senseless deaths of people of color clear cover-ups and travesties of justice for decades. But you've been very vocal about the riots and your right to bear arms. Brianna Taylor's tragic death and the clear lack of justice is why we are exhausted, furious, disillusioned and afraid for our children. And unfortunately, the response of many Christians and churches is why we are bidding farewell to America's church. I hope you can just let that sink in for a moment emotionally. Can you, can you hear that? Can you listen to Pastor Tyler? Can you listen without responding? Can you feel what he's feeling or do you immediately go to your preloaded bullets, your preloaded messages and go wham, bam, bam, bam. Here's why you're wrong. thank you tyler for posting that think of it this way if you're white and listening <laughs> let me read one let me read you one more thing then i'll then i'll finish that thought i was sitting had the privilege of sitting in a room a multi-ethnic room of pastors with majority black uh, pastors in the room the day after the Breonna Taylor verdict came out. And so the first hour of the meeting, black pastors just expressed how they were feeling in this moment, the moment of Breonna Taylor killers not coming to justice. And one black pastor who is a great personal friend of mine, he said, if you come to my mother's funeral, don't tell me all the reasons why it was okay that she died. Do you see how that just changes the entire landscape of the conversation? Put your weapons down. <laughs> this isn't that kind of fight. Listen to my brother's heart. He says if you come to my mother's funeral, don't tell me all the reasons why it was okay that she died. Back to that point, if you're if you're white, and listening to this, you think of it like this hmm. Pastor Tyler feels the way he f- feels that he put in his post. I can't say it any better than he did or truer, because particularly uh, it's his experience as a person of color. I haven't f- felt the pain. That he's felt, I can try to empathize with his pain, but it's his pain. He he has these are his wounds. My other pastor friend, who equated the Brianna Taylor verdict to his mother's funeral and the responses given, the justifications, the arguments like being told all the reasons why it was okay for his mother to die. His mother, his mother. Is he, is he making it up? Is Pastor Tyler making it up? The countless number of just life experiences, life stories of black people in my own life that I know, that I'm friends with, their experience, are they making it up? I, I cannot imagine how frustrating, so frustrating it would be to be black in a white America, a white majority, a white majority, white structures, America and, and how much harder it would be to be a black Christian. because because when you meet Jesus, you would you would expect that it would be different in the church. You would expect uh, you would expect biblical community like they experienced in the first century amongst Jews and Gentiles, and barbarians and Scythians and Samaritans and Roman soldiers, the many other ethnicities that had extreme animosity towards one another, that found themselves in the same church in the same communities, church communities, caring for one another. And so you meet this Jesus and you go and you say, the white church will get it. They'll understand. We'll be in community together. And listeners, this is statistically proven. Uh, Rediscipling the White Church, the David Swanson book, talks about these stats, that the views of White Christians are more similar to the views of white non Christians than they are the views of Christians of color. So we're more similar to not unsaved people than we are to saved people of color when it comes to our views of the world, of politics, of economics, of these sorts of things. It's statistically proven. Divided by Faith, Emerson and Smith, a sociological study that they did, that white evangelicals, the, <laughs> the, you would think being a Christian, the assumption would be would make one, would make people less racist. And on a one definition of racism, that's potentially true that you you think kind thoughts towards individual black people and don't sort of hate individual black people because of because of their skin color. And we'll talk about some of this in the interview with David Swanson, but being a white evangelical Christian according to Emerson and Smith actually makes you more racist contributing more here's here's how here's what that means contributing more to the systems of racism that disadvantage as a verb they disadvantage people of color that our worldview as white Christians it's just statistically shown it's it's you can read the survey results and so how frustrating it would be to be a black Christian thinking you're you, you're entering you're experiencing the kingdom of God here on earth it's the kingdom come near oh. <laughs> and you you just hear more of the same more of the same of the uh. and we use the word hate too too loosely I'm gonna try not to use that word, but it's not love. You're called a liar. (laughs) We gotta get to the interview. The interview is awesome with David. Uh, I'm not gonna do a Noah's rant today. I just decided that when we do these episodes, so if you're new to the flip side, uh, not every episode is on racial justice. I'm not sure I can handle that. I just, it's so heavy. It's so sad. Uh, David helps bring some hope. Bring some hope, baby. We got hope in Jesus. Uh, We're planting mustard seeds, but we're not going to do a Noah's rant. It just doesn't, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't fit the mood. For those of you who knew the podcast, I, I always end the podcast with this just zany, silly, ridiculous my attempt at comedy, uh, Noah's rant, I do have a good rant for my next rant, <laughs> uh, but we'll save it. We'll save it. Um, yeah, so just enjoy this episode, or I should say enjoy this interview. Sorry, I just get a little emotional when I talk about this stuff, so thanks for bearing with me. Enjoy this interview with David Swanson. I pray that it would challenge you. Um, it's not entertainment. I don't say enjoy it like that, but let it... Let it engage you at a deep level. May God, I pray God would speak to you through it and challenge you, challenge your worldview with scripture. Again, I said that earlier. (laughs) Isn't that what scripture's for? Scripture is meant to shape our worldview. It's meant to challenge the world's worldview. It's not meant to just accommodate, (laughs) it's not the sidecar to the motorcycle that is the American cultural worldview. No, it's the driver's seat. It's it's meant to create our worldview. So, so humbly, um, I hope this podcast and how it points to scripture does some of that in your life and in the life of your church. Uh, David W. Swanson is the pastor of New Community Covenant Church, a multicultural congregation in Chicago's Bronzeville neighborhood. He helps lead New Community Outreach, a nonprofit that collaborates with the community to reduce sources of trauma, and he speaks around the country on the topics of racial justice and reconciliation. He is the author of Rediscipling the White Church, From Cheap Diversity to True Solidarity, the book will be in the show notes. You can also visit David at his website, dwswanson.com. You can follow him on Twitter at David W. Swanson. And here we go, David Swanson. All right, David. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on the flip side. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. All right. So I got to read this first for full effect. Uh, I I'm supposed to say this I need to first thank one of my best friends Kyle Zooks for requesting this interview with you David I guarantee uh, I guarantee it will be one of the most loved flip sides that your ears will ever hear (laughs) Kyle's Kyle has changed my life more than I even realized I don't (laughs) know where I would be without his sage advice So uh, that's that was a text my friend Kyle sent me he's uh, he's one of your fanboys um, That's hilarious. It's so, a lot
1: of pressure. Out.
0: I know. I'll, yeah. I'll try to live so, up to, to a little bit of it. If nobody else is listening, Kyle is listening uh, right now and uh, h- hanging on on every word. So there you go, Kyle. You got you got your shout out. He is the one that uh, really pushed me to read Rediscipling the White Church, and, and I'm thankful for it. So uh, thanks, Kyle. Thanks for pushing that. <laughs> All right. So let's start with the subtitle uh, from Cheap Diversity. To true solidarity, just kind of—it's a compelling subtitle. Kind of break some of the, those two phrases down. What is cheap diversity, and what is true solidarity? Yeah. Well, hey, no, thanks
1: again for having me. And um, so I I pastor a multiracial church, and so I I come to this topic having kind of thought a lot about multiracial congregations over the past fifteen years or so. And one of the ways that cheap diversity gets expressed in multiracial contexts is when you have a a culture in the church that is still, I would say, kind of a white culture, mm-hmm. and yet you add some diversity to it. So from one vantage point, it may look like a diverse congregation, and, and yet... On a kind of cultural level, on the level of assumptions and priorities, and this is how we do things, this is what's important to us, it still operates as a white congregation. And I say that almost kind of confessionally because I'm writing this book to white congregations, and I'm not in a white congregation, I'm in a multiracial one, and yet the challenge exists for churches like ours as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to content ourselves with a cheap diversity, a diversity that is is superficial, that maybe looks good to the eye, but hasn't really gotten to the level of kind of deep reconciliation when it comes to relationships. Nor, and this is I think is really important, is it actually addressing the material sources of injustice that impact so many of our sisters and brothers in Christ. And, and so I think that we have held up diversity as uh, a kind of panacea or as the goal. We've held up churches, frankly, like mine as mm-hmm. exemplary. And, and I, I love our church. I love the multiracial church. But I think when we shift toward the kind of biblical language of solidarity, rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep, all of a sudden we, we do two things. One, I think we actually elevate the stakes a little bit. We raise the bar a little bit. We say we're not just after a surface level diversity. We're after genuine lived solidarity, which will cost us something but we also now make this vision of reconciliation and justice available to everyone. You don't have to be in a multiracial church to pursue solidarity. You don't have to live in a you know, ethnically or racially diverse neighborhood or suburb in order to pursue solidarity within the body of Christ. And I try to kind of flesh that out a little mm-hmm. bit in, in the book, but I think solidarity is a, is a biblical vision. And I think it's one that gives all of us a, an on-ramp into this important ministry of, of, reconciliation and
0: justice so you brought up the word material as you were talking just now and how does explain what you mean I guess first by material yeah. and how does material have anything to do with diversity because I think a lot of people when they think of diversity they just think okay show me a photograph and in that photograph I see you know white black right. brown okay that's that's mm-hmm. diverse uh what's material have anything to do with any of this stuff
1: yeah so again being kind of reflective and confessional in my own context in in multiracial churches one of the things that happens is that a a white church will say listen we want to be you know we want to be more multiracial for the sake of the gospel you know really good motives really good intentions and so they restructure some things hire some new staff folks and and sure enough uh the, the church begins to diversify and you know over time what used to be a majority white congregation becomes a a multi ethnic church and then something happens um usually it's some what i would kind of describe as a, a traumatic publicly traumatic event mm. you know it could be you know something that's happening in the political world uh it could be something that's happening around you know an instance of uh you know of, of law enforcement uh, you know uh, acting excessively when it comes to 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 forced um could be a, you know a black you know man or woman killed in police custody and we've seen this all summer long right so we kind of can picture th- this mm-hmm. moment and, and we know it can happen in different kinds of ways but but it's a public moment it's something that we're all aware of and now we go back to that church and the 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 people of color come to to church that Sunday after this thing has happened, expecting that their congregation is going to acknowledge it, right? Because this has been felt strongly. This has mm-hmm. been a source of grief or trauma or sadness. And 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 then nothing is said. Uh, you know, there's no word mentioned from from the pulpit. There's nothing nothing said from the pastor. And and this person feels, you know, let down by that, right? Because this is their lived reality. This is their their lived experience. And so maybe then this person asks some questions. They say, well, hey, you know, how come pastor didn't say anything about this? And how come our church doesn't really seem to, to, to be engaged in this way? And oftentimes what that person is met with is, hey, you need to stop being political mm-hmm. or you need to stop bringing those liberal issues to church. When all this person is doing, right, is, is saying, these are things that are impacting my life. These are things that are weighing heavily on me, are impacting my children, etc. Is there, is there not room for our church to, to acknowledge this and to respond prayerfully as, as a congregation does in so many other ways? Mm-hmm. The, the the dynamic that's revealed in that kind of moment is a really important one, I think, especially for those of us who are white to understand, because we have been shaped in certain ways to think about reconciliation as something that is primarily done between two individual peoples mm-hmm. on the relational level. So we think about something like racism as as fundamentally a, a relational problem. And so our goal is to reconcile individuals to each other across lines of, of, of racial difference. And when that starts to happen, so when that majority white church becomes more diverse, we think, okay, it's happening. We've mm-hmm. done it right. We're this vision of reconciliation because we see these relationships in place, but now put yourself in, in the shoes of that person of color who has experienced some of the the, the worst of this racialized society, who has experienced racism, not just in an interpersonal way, but in a kind of structural and societal way. Relationships are great for that person, but relationships in and of themselves do nothing to address the material sources Mm -hmm. of that person's experience, right? That person can have three or four white friends and yet the, 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 the systems, the structures, the societal assumptions remain the same. And and so that that person of color realizes, okay, this church has a very different understanding of reconciliation, and it's one, frankly, yeah. that is going that is privileging the 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 white perspective over the actual lived experience of of that person of color. And so that's why I think we need to be intentional about talking about the the material sources of injustice because that's what's actually impacting sisters and brothers in Christ. That's the thing that's that's shaping uh, people's experiences in in this world and. For those of us who are white and who have often been shielded from some of those things, this is an area of, of, of maturing for us that we can start to, to develop a larger vision of, of God's heart for justice and reconciliation that includes relationships always, but also includes those things that are actually impacting people's lives. Mm.
0: What advice would you give for, let's say, it's a church, or let's say it's just an individual who's listening? And when they hear you say systems and structures, you know, they start rolling mm-hmm. their mm-hmm. eyes maybe or there seems yeah. to be a lot of, I don't know, I call it propaganda. There seems to be a lot of, of messaging out there politically that when someone starts saying those things, there's sort of an eye roll. Right. And, and there's a worldview that exists and it's it's plenty strong in the white church as well. Uh, this uh, this worldview that you know my experience really is the only experience that that's out Mm. there and so I haven't experienced these things and there's just this assumption that um we all have had the same American experience you know from the day we were born until today there's sort of this equal opportunity we're kind of taught these things in school and um just for for someone and I'll try to there's people that are combative about this so let's say it's not a combative person let's say it's somebody that's that's humble and and they're they're wanting to learn, but they're maybe it's a pastor, and they're they're saying, "I don't know. i I, I don't think it's a systems thing. I think those people right. I think those people, those poor people, they're they're lazy. They need to pull themselves mm-hmm. up by their bootstraps. Mm-hmm. Um, is there advice you could give? I know it's a big question for the limited time we have, but advice you could give that might help someone consider maybe shifting their worldview over to understanding. Some of the systems and structures that people of color are up against, and that if right. if we want to be diverse and and we want to be reconciled, we <laughs> you you cannot do that without getting to this right. point of acknowledging the structures. Yeah,
1: yeah, and I mean you're absolutely right that this is tends to be one of the significant areas of pushback experienced by by many white people who are are waking up to these realities of, of racial injustice. and in part this is because in the same way that that white culture highly values individualism and relationalism, as um as Michael Emerson and Christian Smith point out in their book Divided by Faith, we're also really shaped by an anti-structuralist view of the world, which yeah. is to say that we 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 are we are a bit skeptical of this language of structures and systems. And and particularly those of us who are Christian, because we fear that if we, you know, if we if we acknowledge or if we focus on systems and structures, and somehow that diminishes the power of the gospel to save individual people. Mm-hmm. I just want to say we can. We can do both, right? We we can absolutely affirm the power of the gospel to save individual people and acknowledge that as sinful and broken people our sin uh, does not remain contained within us as individuals right if we think of maybe the smallest society or culture that i'm a part of it's my family it's the smallest system there's four of us in that family and as much as i'd like to think that my own sinfulness is is somehow maintained within my own body i know that it's not it Mm -hmm. spills out into my relationship with my wife to my, you know, short temper with with my sons, right, and, and on and on, uh, we could think of these examples just on a very small level, and so of course this is going to be a reality in larger systems as well, in societies as well. I think we need to have a a robust view of sin and acknowledge that sinful people create sinful structures and systems and 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 governments and and so on. And I actually think that white Christians are are willing to acknowledge this in, in some areas. It's just that there's others that make us a little bit a little bit more timid. Mm-hmm. So I think let's let's develop a a more robust view of sin in the way that sin infects everything that we create. But let's not be afraid to do that because you know anytime our view of sin gets a little bit more accurate. Uh, the cross also gets uh, that much bigger as well. That that there is no sin, no matter how systemic or or how widely spread, that will ever be too much for the, for the cross of Jesus. And so I think we can actually be confident in in this conversation. And and whether or not we've thought about sin on a systemic level before, uh, I think we can do that because the gospel is a foundation strong enough for us to do so. And frankly. If we are ever going to start to make a dent in the segregation that is experienced in the American church, we're going to have to grow up in this area. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to mature in this area and start to acknowledge the way that there are um, there are things kind of built into our society that privilege some of us at the expense of, of others within the body of Christ. And that's a, maybe a hard pill to swallow, but I, I think we can do that, and I think when we do, we're much better positioned to actually experience the solidarity uh, that that God intends for us to know.
0: Mm. So, let's say there's a, a white pastor of a white church, and they're they're going to attempt to talk about systemic. Issues for the first time, so systemic racist, systemic racism, systemic mm-hmm. injustices. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, you know, we, we could talk about kind of these buzzwords, whether it's white privilege or it's uh, sure. sure our history. You know, p- redlining. Uh, you right. know, on up right. and um, police brutality. There's, the, but they they realize that if they say certain words, right. let's say in a sermon right. or elsewhere, uh, they might get fired um, they, 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 they risk losing a significant amount of people from, from their church. And it's easy for us to say, let it rip brother, speak the truth or sister, you know, speak the truth, um, let them go if they leave. But we're talking Mm -hmm. about that person's livelihood. We're talking Mm -hmm. about, you know, Mm -hmm. this church Mm -hmm. of however many people being kind of going through a lot, just trauma. Uh, yeah. What what wisdom or advice do you have for that pastor on how to begin uh, engaging in talking about these yeah. systemic things as a part of the discipleship of their church?
1: Yeah, yeah, and 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 I don't know when when this episode will air, but I mean we're in the thick of an election yeah. season right now, and everything you just described is an absolute lived. A reality for so many pastors around this country right now, who 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 I think feel like they're just barely holding their churches together, you know. Yeah. Uh, so that's it's a painful reality, and it, and it's one that I know is is pretty widely felt. So I I would say a few things. First, I actually do think it's important that as pastors we are willing to to get fired over this. That. I'm gonna say more than just that, but I do think it's important (laughs) to start there, that we actually develop a conviction in our gut that this is the gospel, that we are talking about the witness of the body of Christ here and to content ourselves with a a kind of watered down, segregated version of, of what God intends for us, and is so plainly viewed, seen in, in, in the New Testament, is, is just unacceptable for those of us called to pastoral ministry. So the, I, I do think we need to have that come to Jesus moment. Now, that doesn't mean that we try to get fired. We try not to get fired, right? But we need to be okay with that. Um, my friend, Dominique Gilliard, uh, who's written a really important book called Rethinking Incarceration, he he says something that I found so helpful, uh, and he usually is directing this to, to white pastors. He'll say, don't let the thing you cannot say today about racial justice and reconciliation in your church be the same thing you cannot say five years from now. He's acknowledging sort of you you have to know where your church is. You have to know, you know, what those mm-hmm. words are that are going to, mm-hmm. you know, immediately cause them to, to disengage. Yeah. But as clergy, as pastors, it's our job to lead people deeper into the truth. We we serve the one who is the the, the truth itself. And so and so we we can think a little bit more strategically then. Okay, here's where we are today. Where are we going to be a year from now? Where are we going to be two years from now? Where are we going to be three years from now? So let's not, you know, let's not immediately jump into the pulpit and try to burn everything down. Let's also not be afraid or timid. Let's be thoughtful. Let's realize where we actually are in our churches. Let's realize where those areas of immaturity are. Let's realize where our church does not yet have a tolerance for the full truth, and and let's begin discipling them, you know, in in that direction.
0: So you said a phrase that we can unpack for a second where you said this is the gospel and I know there's some listeners and sort of my tribe growing up would would, would point at that and say, Click off, nope. That guy just right. said that guy just said that, that fixing racism is the gospel. The right. gospel is Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. And if you accept that forgiveness into your life, you will be saved from your sins and go to heaven and you're saved by grace mm-hmm. not by works that's the gospel and what you just said was works based uh and and uh not you know it's what that has nothing to do with Jesus so mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I, and mm-hmm. let me just say this your book rediscipling the white church does a fantastic job of ta- of walking through this so i i encourage mm-hmm. any reader that either is intrigued by what you said or is upset about it to read the book because it i think it masterfully walks through um, what you're talking about, but let's just pause there. What do you mean? Uh, what do you mean when you say this is the gospel?
1: Yeah. So I, I want to say a couple things here, um, and I don't know if I'm going to help or make it worse. <laughs> uh, so you'll you'll have to you have yeah. to make that call. I, I think for a long time, white Christians have have viewed racial reconciliation as a as a sort of option. It's as though we we picture a, a buffet table uh, or or a, a potluck line of all the different sort of justice options, and and you you know you might have the option to help uh, you know, build wells in a country in Africa, right, or to fight against sex trafficking, mm-hmm. uh, or to be involved with uh, you know you know uh, unwed pregnant mothers. Uh, and then over here is racial reconciliation, and, and you choose. Uh, when I read the New Testament, what I find is that reconciliation is simply a part of our identity as the people of God. It's not its not a thing that we necessarily do. It's, it's meant to be who we are. We're meant to be known by the reconciliation accomplished for us by Jesus on the cross. And this reconciliation, as you say, absolutely reconciles us to God through the shed blood of Jesus but i can't read paul and and not see how he continually emphasizes this note of this other reconciliation where those who were form, formerly lived as enemies to one another, those who uh, in that particular time and place wouldn't associate with each other, that these are, are now being reconciled together, again, through the shed blood of Jesus as evidence of, of the power of what was accomplished on the cross. And so to, to remove our kind of embodied reconciliation with each other from our reconciliation with, with the Father. I think does a great disservice to what we actually find uh, in in the New Testament in particular. So, you know, one, one example, um, the church in Corinth, when they come to the communion table, they bring with them the kind of assumptions of the empire, of, of the status mm-hmm. quo of their day, right? Which is that, hey, if you're wealthy and rich, you come you come to the table you're full to overflowing you might even be a little bit tipsy and if you're if you're on the margins if you're impoverished you you come you come hungry you come thirsty and i read that as someone who kind of inhabits a more egalitarian society and i think wow we would never be okay with that in our church if we knew about it at least mm-hmm. right we would we would call that out that wouldn't be okay i don't think that'd be okay in any church in america if if we knew that that dynamic was happening but that's because their status quo is different from our status quo. So what Paul is calling out in his his very, very stern language about about the Lord's Supper is something that was so common as to have become invisible for, for that early church. I think if Paul were writing to the to the white church in particular today, he would have very similar language when it comes to race. And the way that we bring with us the racial assumptions, the racial status quo of our world. We 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 miss the unreconciled nature of our lives. And so when we get to that moment where we are to evaluate ourselves and to confess anything before we come to the table, we we don't even have in mind the kind of unreconciled nature of, of our lives and how that damages then our. our witness to the reconciliation with the father that was also accomplished by Jesus. So, so for me, it, it, I just, I don't, I don't think we can take these two apart. I think we need to hold them together and say that the gospel of Jesus is this powerful, is this big, that to be reconciled with our creator God through the shed blood of Jesus innately then means that we are going to be living into this reconciliation with each other.
0: Yeah, I, I love that, and I think what it brings up is how the gospel, it brings life change. The gospel actually, you know, if you really, pay, I was giving sort of a uh, a, a made-up caricature of a person saying, you know, this is what the gospel is sort of earlier, and if you were to pin that person down who's saying, no, it's it's by grace you've been saved, you, you, they still would have to admit The gospel brings about life change there's a there's a heart change there's a life change that if you just were to say some magic words uh, you know i believe jesus is my savior whatever and that was kind of it i i believe most of those people they ought to at least admit that that's not the gospel that it's that there is a if you if you actually read the new testament it's about following jesus it's about the kingdom of god coming here And that's a whole nother conversation maybe we can get into about the kingdom of God and and Mm -hmm. how I think little that's talked about in a lot of white evangelical churches and how how when you don't talk about the kingdom of God, it makes it a lot harder to talk about these things, I think. Right, Um, right, right. But I think of the example in your book where you talk about Ephesus and there's the riot that came Mm -hmm. from evangelism. Mm -hmm. And the Mm -hmm. reason that the riot came is because it was messing up their – really, these are my words, not – uh, not quoting the book, but it was an uh, economic disruption. Right. It was a socio-economic right. disruption because once you follow Jesus, once you receive right. that good news of Jesus, which is all gospel means, it means good news uh, yeah. of Jesus. It radically changed your life. It radically changed the right. way you treated the poor, right. the what you did with your money. It messed up all their economics, and they were uh, upset that uh, yeah. they were upset that their economic system got messed exactly. up because of Jesus and. Uh, you could fast forward to that today, and it's the way we do evangelism today. It doesn't upset anything. It if if any yeah. we we sort of camouflaged ourselves in with American Christian the American culture, and 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 we've done that. We say so that more people can can get saved, more people can mm-hmm, know Jesus. We mm-hmm, make it easier mm-hmm, for them. Mm-hmm. And now 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 I'm going on my <laughs> on my rant. But no, that's it's absolutely like, right. Jesus never did that. He never he never yeah. made it hey, I'm going to make it as easy as possible. You know, he just said, I always think of right. the end of John 6, where he feeds the 5,000, which was about 20,000. They all leave him because he doesn't do another miracle. And he turns right. to the disciples and he says, hey, are you guys going to leave too?
1: <laughs> That's right.
0: This is the truth. This is the gospel. So um, yeah, all that to bring up some bigger concepts uh, that that you talk a lot about with the kingdom of God and with when evangelism, it ought to disrupt. It ought to disrupt um, social systems because... That's what Jesus did. He did. I mean, yeah. It's so that's right. clear And, it's, in the
1: and Bible. it's not a, it's not a, a somehow kind of a works based righteousness, right? Like we don't do these things to earn our salvation or to earn God's favor. They're evidence of the transformation. Yeah. They're evidence of what the, what Christ has accomplished, you know, for us, what the Holy Spirit is doing in us that, that we cannot live according to the patterns of this world, as Paul said, any longer. It's just that when it comes to race, so often white Christians haven't seen how the patterns of this world are opposed yeah. to the kingdom of God, and, and so we haven't even known necessarily to to apply our discipleship, to apply our sanctification, to apply our willingness to follow Jesus to pick up our cross to these, you know, these assumptions, these these structures, these, these ways of, of living in, in our, in our, in our society, which, which kind of sustains this racial hierarchy. I I think once we see that, once we can acknowledge that, once we can say, Oh my goodness, my discipleship to Jesus applies here as well. Well, then that, that transformation, right. That, that thing that only God can do in us is now being applied in this way too. And again, it's not to earn my salvation. It's, it's to live it out in Mm -hmm. this very particular way.
0: Can you talk about what discipleship means to you? I feel like discipleship is one of the overarching foundations of of your whole book. And you talk yeah. about how we all, and correct me if I'm misquoting this, but how we, we all are racially discipled, yeah. wh- whether we're admitting it or not. Every single one of us is being racially discipled. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I, I borrow heavily from Dallas Willard, and my so my simple definition is a discipleship is following Jesus in order to become like Jesus to do what Jesus does in the world. Mm. And depending on your your church tradition, you tend to emphasize one of those three. I think we we do our best to hold all three together. Uh, we leave we leave stuff behind in order to follow Jesus. We are transformed from the inside out by Jesus, um, and then through the power of the Spirit, we do what we see uh, Jesus doing in the world. When it comes to racial discipleship, it's just this idea that uh, that discipleship is not, you know, solely a Christian idea, right? We we're, we're being shaped, formed, mm-hmm. led, directed by all sorts of different mm-hmm. things. Is you know the, the, the biblical language about this has to do with idolatry, right? Anything that we give our affections or allegiance or worship to, and you know, in in this country, um, one of the things that that forms us away from the kingdom of God is the the kind of racial assumptions of of this world, the the racial status quo. And so we get, we get discipled racially in a way that segregates us, that kind of turns our attention away from uh, racial injustice um, that, that leaves us content in a kind of segregated Christian experience that can acknowledge that, yes, there is the wider body of Christ out there, but actually leaves us, without any real desire to experience it ourselves you know mm-hmm. or 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 to privilege the uh you know the the experiences of our sisters and brothers who might be suffering over our over our own our, our own experiences so i think these are some of the the results of that racial discipleship that is at work on our imaginations our assumptions um, and again, it's it's gone relatively unchecked in most white churches because we haven't applied our, our discipleship in this area. And once we do, that's where things get good, right? That's where mm-hmm. there's, I think, amazing creativity available to congregations in their own contexts to just allow the good discipleship work that's already happening there to now be
0: applied to this area of race as well. I love the phrase within your definition of we do what we see Jesus do in the world. And I know... That concept that you wrote about, it it really shifted my paradigm of what discipleship really is because often in the, I think just in the Western world, in the white Western world, we think of discipleship as learning. We think of it as uh, if I sit in a physics class, uh, I want to learn that the knowledge is in my physics professor's head. And that's my goal. And so I go to church the same way. I want to learn the knowledge that's in the Bible, mm-hmm. or the knowledge mm-hmm. that's from the pastor, or the seminary, or or whatever. And i mm-hmm. i don't see I don't see Jesus doing a lot of that in in the New Testament. Yeah. Um, he he. I, I would never approach my physics class the way the disciples approach Jesus in the New <laughs> Testament where I'm saying, I want to be my physics teacher. I want to be like my right. physics teacher. It, whatever mm-hmm. his or her, uh, mm-hmm. you know, moral life is like, I want to be like that. I want to treat the poor the mm-hmm. way my physics teacher treats the poor. I want to interact with people of different ethnicities the way mm-hmm. my physics... We would never think of a class that way uh, in, in, in in college. But we, we think of our... I think that's how we we use discipleship. I think that's how a yeah. lot of... Small groups are structured. it's hey, here's a curriculum, let's learn the knowledge. let's learn this this theology and I, I love that idea of what did Jesus do and and can we disciple actually, it's so obvious. Yeah. it's sad how obvious that is and how uh, we've we've missed it and blown it. So I just want to say thank you to you for what you wrote because it really helped. It helped reconfigure that for me, and both my 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 vocation as a pastor, as well mm. as um, as a Christian. Because and here's the last thing I'll say: I I wrote a book on sexual purity. I think it's really mm-hmm, important, mm-hmm. so I don't I don't uh, I don't diminish that at all. But it feels like in the right. church, if you were to ask somebody, what does it mean to to do what Jesus did? What does it mean to what do you do as a Christian? You would say, well, you don't don't do sexual sin, right? right,
2: um, right.
0: Don't don't do substance abuse and be nice, you know, be kind mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, forgive. And those are all important things. And that's it. There's there's really nothing to do. It's just things not to do. And yeah. Jesus actually did a lot. He did, He showed us a, a lot. lot that we could do. Yeah. A lot of really good stuff, right? Yeah. And, and, and I don't think
1: anything that you just said, no, none of that takes away from the importance of knowledge, right? There is the, yeah, the necessity of learning, right? We need to, as Christians particularly, we, we need to know the scriptures. We need to be immersed in the world of the scriptures. Um, it's just that knowledge is not the end. It's not the goal, right? It's participation with Jesus in what only God can do in this world. I mean, if the kingdom of God has really come near because of of the of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, yeah. then we get to participate in announcing and alerting the world to that kingdom through the power of the Holy Spirit. We we get to be a part of that. We can expect um, to, to live on the edge of that, which of course brings opposition and pushback, but also great intimacy with mm-hmm. our Savior, right? And, and great, I think, uh, exhilaration as we live into our purpose as uh, sons and daughters of you know of our Creator. So, hundred percent, yes to every, everything you just said. And and I think you're right. I think it applies not just to this conversation about race, but you know, the sexuality and to you know, to other every other area of, of our lives that. That that we are being transformed by Jesus for something to, to 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 participate with Jesus in something beautiful.
0: Yeah, I love it, and that excites me. That I I I don't want to be bored. I want something to do. I want to be a part right. of a right. of an adventure. I want right. to be a part of a kingdom. And That's and right. I, I I sometimes maybe to a fault I think of life as a a battle, you know, between mm-hmm. good and evil. Mm-hmm. And, and I and I want to. I want to get some swings in there, uh-huh. you know. I want to be, uh-huh. I want to be a part of this, not just yeah. you know sitting on the sidelines, sort of watching. So, yeah that's that right. that gets me excited, and and that's I hope listeners who are maybe on the fence about some of this uh, could get excited, you know, about uh-huh. that about that too. So, well, let me uh, kind of take us down our our home stretch here with a with a few a uh, couple practical um, questions for for listeners. Uh, you've mentioned this uh, early on. There's um, white, there's people, white people that are very segregated. Uh, there's a stat you give in the book. I don't remember what the stat was, but a, a white person's social network is very segregated. So most white people just know a bunch of other white people. And yeah. so what advice do you have? And this has been helpful for me. You know, it's easy when you live in the city, uh, which I did for 15 years, and you live in the inner city and you're doing you're doing diverse, reconciling work uh it's easy to kind of get on a soapbox and and say you know those white people right and then uh but if you go out into the rural areas of pick your state i mean every state has very rural farmland and Mm-hmm. Predominantly, it's only white people around. Mm-hmm. Uh, or mm-hmm. if you're in a, a suburb, suburbs are a little different because they were many were created because of white flight and redlining. But but we'll throw suburbs mm-hmm. in as well, just for people that this is the majority majority of these listeners yep. probably. It's the majority yep. of many many churches out there. What is a, a white person to do? They don't live in the city. Uh, they they attend an all white church. Um, <laughs> They certainly aren't horrible people, which we, which we can nope, m- make nope. them out to be, right? They just are living where they live. They, yep. They're living sort of Absolutely. where culture, culture has determined for them to live. And so just yeah. what, what advice would you give for them on what they can do uh, to create this true solidarity?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I want to say that, you know, as I'm answering this, that I, I have lots of friends who pastor in those exact sorts of contexts. And I love their ministry. I love the, the, the possibility of, of what they're doing. Uh, I used to think, uh, as you kind of hinted, that the work of racial reconciliation and justice was mostly for those in urban settings or multiracial settings. I, I don't believe that anymore. Uh, once we start to apply our discipleship to this, a lot of the really good potential is in the exact settings that you just described. Mm -hmm. And I I actually hope, that was one of my hopes for this book is that somebody would read this who who was interested in racial reconciliation, but just never felt like there was a role for them to say, oh, you know, there is in my setting, in my context, in my church, right now we can start. So having said that, I think there's a few things. One, I would suggest for, for the person who's living in a relatively racially homogenous area to do a little bit of research and to start asking, how come my town looks the way it does? How come my suburb looks the way it does? One of the things that racial discipleship uh, does uh, to white people is make us think that our lived environments are simply uh, neutral results of a bunch of you know personal choices. Right, so white people wanted to live here, black people wanted to live there, brown people, and that's just not how it works in this country. There, there are histories. There are, there are, uh, uh, you know, federal uh, policies. There are, you know, bank loans. Uh, There are histories of racial purgings in some areas of of our country, and 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 so we actually need to understand that. So we need to 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 move from this uh, idea that this is just how things are, and so I don't need to really think about it that much. To there's reason why things are the way they are. And so I do actually, and and what happens then is that we, we shift from viewing our, uh, the ground we walk on as just being sort of neutral, And we start to see like, you know what? It actually bends in a certain direction. Mm. And it's not a direction I want to go in, right? Mm. It bends away from the reconciliation of the kingdom of God. It bends into this kind of racialized discipleship that segregates and oppresses. So that's the first thing, become a student of your town, your suburb, your neighborhood. It's not hard to do in the age of the internet and Google. You can do some research really fast and, and learn some important stuff. Second thing I would say is, start to pay attention to where the um where the marginalized people in your community live uh you know there's i have a friend who pastors in a rural area here in illinois and from one vantage point you could say well it's the mostly white area but then you realize well it's agricultural so there's actually there's there's quite a few uh you know more recent immigrants who live in that mm-hmm. community as well uh, another friend who pastors uh, up near a lake in Wisconsin, kind of more of a recreational area. Same thing, service sector, quite a few immigrant peoples there. Well, now that that pastor, he understood that. He had the eyes to kind of look around and start to poke around a little bit. He didn't buy into the narrative that this was an all-white area. And what that eventually led to was this really amazing partnership with a Spanish-speaking church planter mm. who felt called to that area, who also had eyes to see uh, the ministry potential there. And they were able to partner up and start to do some, some really amazing ministry together. So so start doing some of That work as well, like kind of push beyond the assumption that this is how this place is, start to look a little bit deeper. And the last thing I would say is start praying about this. If reconciliation is tied up in the gospel, if this this kind of witness across cultural lines of division and hostility is at the heart of what God wants to do in the world to proclaim his glory, then then we ought to be praying about this. And if we do an honest evaluation and realize that our lives personally don't express this in any kind of way, well, let's start asking God to change that in us. Let's ask God to show us where our blind spots are, where we've gotten comfortable in some things. Let's ask God to show us where there's potential for some relationships and participation across these lines of division that we just missed prior to that. I, you know, I guarantee if we start praying this way, the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit's going to start showing us some stuff. So going to be hard, yeah. right? So it's going to be ugly that we're going to have to repent over, but a lot of it's going to be exciting as well. It's going to be opportunities for us to start living into some of the stuff we were talking about a, a few minutes ago. So I think if we, if we do that, if, if we start becoming students of our place, start seeing kind of who's been made marginal or invisible uh, and start praying, you know, that God would start leading us deep, more deeply into these kinds of relationships and then part participation.
0: Um, things will start getting interesting pretty quickly. Yeah. (laughs) Interesting. That's a good word. (laughs) Yeah. That's so true. In a very good way. In a very good way. Yeah. I love it. And I, and just a, a a side thought on that. I know I've, I live in a, I live in a rural, you know, a little rural town right now, and there are black friends of mine that won't come to this town. Right. They, um, And that's not just this town, that's a bunch of towns. Yep. I've talked many, many times. You know, it's funny, I'll talk to a, a black friend and just randomly mention a town and they're like, Oh no, I'm not going there. Uh-huh. And and uh-huh. and white people don't realize that, that we, we have this right. racial stereotype where we're oh, I'm not going into that bad neighborhood because I might get shot. Uh-huh. And and uh-huh. The, the likelihood is much higher. I don't know, there's not this isn't research driven or proven, but um I will say the fear is is higher that black people don't want to go into these rural White yeah. towns because yeah. they're afraid that they could get shot just for walking around well black.
1: Yeah, and I would I would encourage your listeners to do a little research on uh sundown towns. Um hmm. sundown towns were were towns where yeah, if you were a person of color, and particularly a black person, you were not allowed to be there overnight. Hmm. Now that history passes from the white imagination very, very quickly but it doesn't for for people of color, right? That that memory is still really, really strong. And so again, a little bit of internet research, you can start to see- Oh my! You know, right in my own county, there's two or three, or four sundown towns. Right, mm. I, I'm I'm here in Illinois. There were mm-hmm. sundown towns uh, a little bit west of me, here in, in the suburbs, and and that memory is still pretty strongly felt.
0: Yeah, and I would say the intimidation is still there today. I see signs yeah, of it right. in my town. White intimidation. It basically just says this. Sometimes it's a con, it's Confederate flags. Uh, it could right, be It right, could be other right. political political flags mm-hmm. and political signs, mm-hmm. and there's there's mm-hmm. an intimidation factor. Uh, and, and my my thought then is if you're a white pastor in one of these towns, this is your place. Y- you know, you, right. you the way you disciple your church can impact this small town to become a, and transform your town to be a place That's where, right. at the very least, people of color should be comfortable That's right. driving through or, or visiting. You know, so it's a pretty, pretty real thing. Um, this yep. question was sent in by a listener, and it is a question about how to uh, the balance between being a change trying to be a change agent where you are if you are in a, a white homogeneous organization so that could be a church could be a christian organization could be another uh, organization, but let's stick with the, the the Christian realm right now. And you want to be a change agent. You've been reading these books and you've been listening to podcasts like this, and you're saying, "All right." And you're talking to the the leaders, and the leaders are saying, "No, this isn't going to happen." Yeah. Uh, and their question is about how. Certainly, there's no exact answer to this, but how how long do you stay um, versus leaving? To to do this stuff somewhere that's actually doing it, or leaving to just go to go and do it with the fear that if you stay too long, you'll just be spinning your wheels, and you kind of end up doing. You stand before God someday and say, "Yep, I didn't do anything because I just stayed. I stayed in that spot where." Uh, so it's a real, it's a real for this person asking this question. It's a real wrestle that that they're struggling with, and it's not
1: it's not just that person that yeah. that is uh, unfortunately a a rather common experience um I, i'll i'll mention a quick resource i actually wrote an article about this a couple years ago and you can find it at Uh and the title is young leaders here are 10 ways to lead up for reconciliation and racial cool. justice um i'm happy to send that to you if,
0: yeah if you, i can if put that like that sh- I'll put that in the show notes for listeners they can just yeah. find it there yeah great because
1: i it really is a a pretty common experience i think and so i i would i would i would hope people would consider a, a couple things one um people of color don't have the privilege of walking away from mm-hmm. from problematic experiences with with white people with you know, systems of, of racism I have that privilege, right? I I can be in a conversation about race and I'm uncomfortable. I can be in an organization that doesn't feel like it's moving fast enough for me and I can walk away, right? Mm -hmm. I, I have that privilege to kind of choose to engage or disengage. And so one of the ways that I think white Christians show evidence of spiritual maturity in this area is when we choose not to walk away. When we choose to remain at places that are challenging and that are difficult, we remember that this is one of the ways of of walking in solidarity with our with our sisters and brothers of color. So that's one thing. That's not to say that you stay somewhere forever. That's not to say uh, that if you're experiencing some kind of, you know, abuse of, of any kind in that space, that, mm-hmm. that it's not OK to walk away. Um, It's just a a kind of check, right? It's a kind of way of being reflective uh, about this. Uh, The other thing I would say is that none of this happened overnight. We're talking about things that are deeply ingrained for hundreds and hundreds of years and, and generations. And we're talking about something that is spiritual work. There is an enemy, and I truly believe this, there's a spiritual enemy who wants the church to remain segregated, who wants white Christians to kind of remain racially discipled in such a way that we're not pursuing solidarity with the rest of of the body of Christ. And and so we we, as much as we would love to see these kind of sudden breakthroughs, we should probably prepare ourselves for what Eugene Peterson talks about as the long obedience in, mm-hmm. in the same direction. Mm-hmm. That this is the work not of of, of months, but of, of decades and generations. That's why I included a, a chapter about children's ministry in, in the book. Mm-hmm. And so so let's think about how I'm gonna be in this church with this organization for, for the years to come. Uh and then the third thing I would say, well third and fourth, find who your people are in that, in that congregation, find who's going to be encouraging you find, you know, who you can be reading with praying with talking with who's going to be an encouragement to you. And then finally find that church outside of your church or that organization outside of your organization where you can spend enough time mm-hmm. to be refreshed, to be reoriented, right. To, to be reminded what's up and what's down. Uh, I, I tell uh, the black people in our church that by, by coming to a multiracial church, they will probably need to maintain a associate membership in the black church of their mm. of their youth or their childhood, mm-hmm. right? There's just going to be some Sundays where you need to be in that place where, you know, your full humanity is, is dignified, where you don't have to worry if people get you or not, where the gospel is proclaimed very clearly to your experience, and that that's an okay and good thing. Similarly, I think for those of us who find ourselves in organizations that are a little bit antagonistic, We need to be in those spaces occasionally where we remember, oh, yeah, I'm not crazy. Mm. (laughs) I'm not too (laughs) radical. Yeah. Right. Like the thing that seems real radical in my church is just common sense Mm -hmm. to, Mm -hmm. you know, my friends in this predominantly black church, for for example. Right. So having some of those grounding experiences can be, I think, really sustaining over the long haul.
0: Yeah. Love it. It's awesome. I got one more final question here this one's a personal one and you you mentioned yeah. it you mentioned it towards the end of your book and so I'd love to get your thoughts on the podcast but uh, what do you do with despair and or paralysis and so and so for me it's uh, it's there's there's two ways this goes one way is just how unequal things really are once you start going down the yeah. rabbit hole Uh, I, 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 it's much like the matrix movie. I, I warn people, I just say, you you know, just be careful. Don't sign up for this Mm -hmm. workshop unless you, you really want your whole world is going to change. And, and it just gets, seems like it just gets harder and harder. There's, there's so much inequity out there and it Mm -hmm. seems to be getting worse Mm -hmm. and worse and Mm -hmm. worse. The inequity, uh, in, in our culture. So that's one area where I look at it and go, Despair. Yeah. Paralysis. Ah, I, I, I feel I want to change this. I want to fix this. If I was the president of the United States, maybe I could fix it and knowing sure. that sure. wouldn't fix it. Um, then the other side, then there's another way that I've experienced despair and paralysis is how many white folks don't get it. So you know, <laughs> you yeah. just go, you how can you not get this?" and And yeah. so my my question is for not just for me, obviously, but for anyone listening that's struggling with despair or paralysis for either of those things or both. And let's throw in anger, especially from people of color mm-hmm. and um mm-hmm. but white people too. there There's an anger towards the white people that don't get it. Uh, and mm-hmm. that's a whole nother emotion. But, um at least anger propels you forward, I think, to act still. <laughs> whereas mm-hmm. despair and paralysis as a white person with privilege i yeah i can just i i can't keep doing this this is so frustrating mm-hmm. and it feels like we're losing it just feels like we're losing over and over and over again um g- yeah. you know g- give your thoughts on that now i like how you i kind of ended your book with with some encouragement along these lines as well yeah
1: yeah yeah i mean i think w- when it comes to the kind of frustration with white christians I wish I had a great answer for that. I, I feel that all the time. I think what's helped me over the years is to realize that the Holy spirit is doing so much amazing work in the church around the world, but in our own country, but often just doesn't get the spotlight, right. Mm-hmm. In, 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 congreg- in immigrant congregations in black churches, um, there's, there's, there's amazing work that's being done. There's amazing ministries of righteousness and, and, and reconciliation that are happening as a white Christian though. I, I just haven't been formed to look there for evidence of God's work. Right. I look for the spotlight. I look for where the money is. I look mm-hmm. for where the crowds are, like where the attention is. And so that's been really helpful for me. And, and I say, you know, I, any white Christian who, who wants to have this conversation, I'm, I'm there, I'm at the table. At the end of the day, though, where I'm looking for evidence of the Holy Spirit's, you know, movement is probably not going to be in those majority whites white Christian spaces. Again, I believe God wants to do something there. I, I, I wrote a book, you know, because of that. But when I need that encouragement, I'm often that's often not where not where I'm looking. You know, to your, to the first question, just about about despair. That's a real thing for people right now. There's mm-hmm. a lot of folks who are who are feeling yeah. that. Um. And, and so I, I want to say this carefully, but I think we really got to be careful about despair. It's okay to be discouraged. It's okay okay to get down. It's okay to have hard days. It's okay to kind of hit 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 the brick wall. Um, but again, the 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 more we are in lived solidarity with the diverse body of Christ, we realize that there can be a sense in which despair also is a privilege, right? Yeah, totally. Um, because it it causes that kind of disengagement. And so I've been profoundly shaped by the the witness of, of African-American Christians in particular who, despite the discouragement, despite the opposition, despite the pushback, continue to worship, you know, continue to glorify God, continue to um, to serve the poor, uh, to con- continue uh, to proclaim the justice of the kingdom of God, uh, regardless of, of their circumstances. And I think now that's that to me is the gospel, the gospel. Is expressed regardless of our circumstances. The hope of the gospel is expressed even when it feels as though evil is going to win the day. Mm-hmm. That is what gospel hope looks like. It, it is a conviction that the resurrection of Jesus Christ sealed the deal for all of eternity. And and yes, we're waiting. Right? We've experienced the first fruits of that, and we are waiting for the final consummation of that. That's why hope is so necessary. But but i would encourage particularly white people in this moment who are who are feeling like they're despairing who are tempted to disengage pay attention to the hope that has been expressed by sisters and brothers of color over the generations in this country Pay attention to how that hope has anchored them and grounded them in circumstances that are far, far mm. more terrible than anything yeah. you or I have ever experienced. And let that witness become your witness as well. Let that testimony become your testimony as well so that we can lament we can tell the truth about how difficult things are. We can do like you just did: acknowledge that 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 things oftentimes feel as though they're getting worse, and simultaneously proclaim a hope that is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A hope then that has to continue to inspire our faithfulness, regardless of the circumstances. Again, it's not we're not trying to to force God to do something. We're not trying to earn God's salvation. That hope is rooted in what's already been done for mm-hmm. us. And it works itself out then in our faithfulness, even when things are really, really hard.
0: Love it. That's super helpful uh, and inspiring. It's encouraging to me, and, and I hope I hope for listeners as well. Um, I've put your your social media and website and and such on the show notes, and I introduced it before you came on with your introduction. So uh, I just encourage listeners to engage. Uh, with David and his book and um, his his material on social media, I will have that Missio Alliance article linked uh, for for young leaders. And you can always email the show email uh, podcast at beyondthebattle.net. if you have questions for me or even for David. I can I can pass along uh, for follow up on these things. We're certainly not going to solve uh, all the world's problems in one hour on a podcast, but I I do hope that this. Conversation has been encouraging and helpful uh, to you as a listener, no matter where you're at right now on the spectrum. So, uh, David, I just want to say a huge uh, thank you. Uh, I, th- I feel like what you just said was such a great send off. Uh, but is there just any any final thoughts you want to give as a as a send off for listeners?
1: I think I would just want to remind folks how good God is, mm-hmm. and that if if, if reconciliation and justice is God's idea, then it's going to be good. And we've talked about a lot of the things that are maybe difficult, some of the pushback, some of yeah. the hard stuff, but if this is God's idea, then it's going to be good. And I can testify to that.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I would never go back. I, I would never trade, you know, the experience of, of the, of the very diverse body of Christ for, for anything else. And so, you know, I, I hope that we can believe that too, particularly if, if a person is earlier on in the journey or if what you've mostly experienced is some of the some of the difficult stuff, just know that how how good God is, and, and you'll get to experience that goodness as as you you know pursue this.
0: Amen. Thanks so much, David. Thanks for having me. No, this was great. All right, all right. Well, I hope you grew and got a ton out of that interview. Encourage you to continue interacting with David via his website, dwswanson.com. Follow him on Twitter, David W. Swanson. And check out Rediscipling the White Church. I know my regular listeners, I know it's it's hard to have a flip side episode with no Noah's rant, but it's got to be done. I, I just recorded the part from earlier in the episode about Tyler's uh, Facebook post and blame Tyler. There we go. Blame Tyler for their you Noah know, noahs rant, his his piece that he put on Facebook, and uh, it was it's just it's heavy and 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 so good, and it, it would feel. But in in many ways, it it feels, in all honesty, it feels like a funeral, and and there's a certain sacredness to what he said, and really what this whole episode is about. And so I don't, not that it ever fits, not that Noah's rant ever fits, but I, I it wouldn't fit today to. Uh, mess with the sacredness of this of this topic and the morning the morning that goes along uh, with this topic so so thank you for listening please subscribe uh if you're not already leave a leave a review if you would and i will uh, see you next time on the flip side the flip side with noah philippiak is a south francis press production Copyright Noah Flipyak. WW
1: Theme music by Kyle Lake at K-Lake Music. Used with permission. Please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever podcasts are found.
2: Souls meeting revivals, one of my I do. Influence like the couple of that Bombay. bay. to them Tom Hanks. Lexus to them Andres. Hope they check my inner reverence stressing for leverage that they see the king checks on the pavement, leading to heaven. Yow yow dripping in that garden selling fake see the green and running belly taking refuge in his hands see his poems my living quarters close them when I am finish it's time to bring me closer there's no purgatory because you're in or you get out when you see him in the clouds then you know it's going down raise them raise them raise them they've been sleeping for some ages now all god's baby so confused by this hatred poor pit preacher shouldn't aim to be a list money probably long but short is what your days Have you ever heard the time of freedom Cause that cross is nothing pretty So out the beauty pageants And caught up in emotions And following your passions Talking about freedom all people need them more than an Easter Or coffee shop discussions Debating over baristas Please sir This is why we inked up Even when they do the art Freedom, freedom, freedom coming quickly. Boss from the spirit. Put it through the preamp and mix it like a chemist. Put it in the airwaves and hoping that they hear it. If there's some confusion, then I hope you see him clearly. Raise him, raise him, raise him. They've been sleeping for some ages. Now all God's babies so confused by this hatred. pit preacher shouldn't aim to be A list. Money probably long, but sure it's with your gaze. Is. Uh.